Well, good morning, commissioned. Yeah, I turned it on. It's on, right? Yep. Well, thank you, Andrew, for that wonderful uh, time of worship. It's wonderful to hear the voices of the saints singing. Uh, It's truly amazing. Uh, Thank you for that. Uh, As Titus said, my name is Tom Dickerson. I am a second-year seminary student here at TMS, and I'm also a second-year and commissioned so it's, it's wonderful to be able to come here and share God's word with you today. I'd like to thank Rodney and Brad for allowing me this privilege. And uh, to that, I'd like to start off with a word of prayer. Father God, you are holy and righteous and just and merciful and loving. We worship you today in song and in spirit and in truth. I pray as... I bring your word here today that you would keep me from error, hide me behind the cross. I pray for uh, ears to hear your word today, Lord, and we do it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our text today, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. So if you want to get your Bibles out, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 1 through 3. And you know, Hebrews is a wonderful book of faith. It's, uh, it's truly amazing, and we tend to focus on Hebrews 11 and that great litany of faithful servants that has been documented for us. Uh, the challenge with, or the, the benefit and the challenge with coming in and preaching one message is that you get to preach anything you want. Rodney and Brad said, yeah, anything in the Bible is like, okay, great. But unfortunately, I don't get a chance to lead you along the way in Hebrews to see what has come before. So we're going to do a little bit of an overview of Hebrews, and hopefully we can get up to speed so that when we go into our text today, it uh, makes a little more sense and you have more uh, context. We know context is important. If you come into a movie 15, 20 minutes after it started, what are you going to say? What did I miss, right? So it's the same way in this text. We want to understand uh, what has come before so that we can appreciate and really get God's word uh, as he meant it to be heard. So one of the things, uh, the, the authorship and location of Hebrews is, is a challenge, so I'm not going to talk about that. Smarter men and women than I have tried to debate that, and I'm just going to punt on that one. But in terms of the content of Hebrews and the, the intended recipients, we know that the, the recipients of Hebrews were uh, predominantly Jewish and Jewish Christians. So they would be familiar with the Old Testament. They would be familiar with the, the contents of the Old Testament and how uh, the progression of saints had, had happened in God's revelation. Uh, the uh, overarching theme of Hebrews is the supremacy of, of Christ. And so with that in mind, I'm going to go ahead and read from our passage today. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured 
such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary, fainting in heart. Title of my sermon today is Commanded to Run. So getting back to the supremacy of Christ in Hebrews, I want to touch on this and lead you through Hebrews uh, to really flesh this out. Christ is revealed as the superior revelation in chapter 1. He is shown to be superior to angels in chapters 1 through 2. He is superior to Moses in chapter 3. Christ is the more secure rest in chapter 4. More secure than the rest that Joshua gave the people of Israel when they uh, felled the walls of Jericho. He is superior to the Levitical high priests in chapters 4 through 8, and the author takes great lengths to, uh, to, to talk about that. Christ is the superior tabernacle. He has a superior ministry, and he brings the superior covenant in chapters 8 and chapter 9. Christ is the superior sacrifice in chapter 10. And he brings the superior kingdom in chapter 12. So we see throughout the letter that the author is concerned about showing the superiority of Christ in all things. And this makes this superiority of Christ the theme for the letter. But not only that, Hebrews is a letter of warning. We see many warnings in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the author warns against drifting away from the word that they have heard. In chapter 3, he quotes Psalm 95.8 in his warning against hardening their hearts against God's word. Chapter 5, verse 11, he says that they have grown dull of hearing and they have need, again, for learning the basic principles of the revelation of God. So much so, they're like a mature adult having to go back to their mother's milk. Chapters 10, verses 26, verse 26, he warns against sinning willfully after having received the knowledge of the truth. Chapter 12, verse 15, he warns against coming short of the grace of God due to a growing root of bitterness among one another. And in chapter 12, verse 25, he warns against re refusing God, the God who is speaking to them through the very words that he's saying to them in the letter. Chapter 13, he warns not to neglect showing hospitality hospitality to strangers, and he warns against the love of money, warns against being carried away by strange teachings. So many warnings there, but not only warnings, he gives encouragement and exhortation. In fact, he ends the letter by saying, bear with these words of exhortation that he has briefly written. He, give exhortation, he gives exhortations for the assembly that was experiencing persecution. So one of the things that he's writing about to the congregation is they had started to experience persecution. Now this wasn't new to this congregation. They had had uh, persecution in the past. And he talks a little bit about that um, in chapter 10, verse, starting in verse 32. He reminds them of the great conflict of sufferings that they had suffered in some time in the past. He talks about them being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. He talks about the affliction 
that they had because they associated with persecuted people. So they were going and visiting prisoners and were persecuted because of that. He also talks about property seizure, you know, a very specific form of persecution. They had their property seized because they were associated with Christians and because they were associated with Jesus Christ. He reminds them that they had endured then at that time because in their faith in what was promised, that is, Jesus Christ. And he encourages them and exhorts them to not be like those who shrink back to destruction, but like those who have faith. So moving into chapter 11, the, the chapter where we see so many uh, faithful servants that were documented, the author gives a famous recounting of all of those who lived by faith, and I would be remiss if I didn't touch upon that as it's leading right into chapter 12. He talks about Abraham, who offered up Isaac as a sacrifice when he was tested. He talks about Moses, who chose association with the people of Israel and the people of God over the comforts of Egypt, living in Pharaoh's household. He had access to all of that, but rather associated with the people of Israel. Not only that, but after his time uh, away, he came back to lead those same people out and lead them in faith through the Red Sea. The author talks about Rahab, who welcomed the Israelite spies into Jericho at great risk to her life, and to those of her family. In addition to these saints, he talks about others who endured great suffering in the form of tortures, mockings, scourgings, chains, imprisonment, stonings, death by the sword, and other means of persecution. Why? Why did they endure this hardship? because they were promised something that they ultimately did not get to see. But they believed nonetheless, and that is the definition of faith. So it's against this backdrop that we come to our scripture today. In Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3, there are two commands that will encourage you to endure the hardships of the Christian life. So for those of you liking to take notes, two main points. The first one's going to have four subpoints. The first command that we see is to compete. Now, in your, in your version, it's going to say, let us run. But this word, run, uh, we're going to talk about it. Uh, you know, I'd be remiss as a seminary student if we didn't get into some of the Greek. But... It, it, uh, it's, it says, run the race. Let us run the race that is set before us. And so we're going to talk about the race and running, as well as the motivation for running, the preparation for running, the manner in which we are to run, and the means by which we are going to run. So the command itself, verse 1, chapter 12, it says, let us run the race that is set before us. The author includes himself in this command. It's a special form in the Greek where he's, he's giving a command, but he's also including himself as the recipient. So if you've ever given something to somebody, uh, given a command to somebody, and you say, let us do this. Sometimes it's meant to be you know, a softening. You really mean you, but 
this, he is affiliating himself with the congregation. And not only that, this is a form that he uses 19 times in Hebrews. So throughout the letter, you can see the author really associating himself closely with this congregation. He's one of them. He knows this congregation. And so he really joins with them in this command. So the command in its basic form is to run. Simple enough. But running, I think today we have a, a concept of running. We, we do things today that would not be recognizable in the ancient times. Uh, it, this is not a casual effort. Running is not, in this context, is not a casual effort. It has the image of an athlete that is striving to run, not just on a, as a weekend warrior, but has dedicated his life to running. Back in ancient times, running was not something that was done casually. You had professional runners. You had runners that were athletes, and they competed to win the prize in the Olympics. But you also had runners that were messengers. If there was a dispatch that needed to take place, maybe from the battlefield, and so in a military context, that person was told to run. Now, they had trained their entire life for that mission. They were not going to fail. So they had sacrificed many things, their diet, their physical uh, bodies, and their free time to the purpose of running. These were not, like I said, these were not casual pursuits. These were serious people doing ser a serious activity. Jogging would have been un unrecognizable at the, at the, during that time. In fact, jogging is just something that's a fairly recent development. Uh, as, early, as near as 1968, Senator Strom Thurmond, some of you may recognize that name, was pulled over by the police early one morning because of suspicious activity. What was he doing? He was jogging, right? Back in that day, if you were running, you were running away from something. You had done something wrong. Uh, but no, this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about an all-out pursuit of the prize, leaving everything on the table, bending all of your effort and will in both the training for it and the execution of it. For a Christian... This means making every effort to honor Christ through submission to him and through obedience to him. For a Christian, there's no option of cheering in the crowd or being a color commentator. We are committed to run or commanded to run to give every effort toward the glory of God and his son. Now, what are we to run? We are to run the race that is set before us Two aspects that I want to talk about is the race itself and being set before us. First, the race itself. The word in Greek is agona. You might recognize that. It sounds very similar to the word agony in our language, which implies a contest, a struggle, or a fight. Back in chapter 10, verse 32, the writer writes, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. That word conflict is athlason, which sounds like athlete. In fact, that's where the word athlete comes from. So here we see imagery of this competition, engagement in running as an athlete in a race that is an agony. Paul uses this word several times, most notably 
in chapter, that is agony, in chapter 2, verse 4 of Timothy, for, uh, chapter 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, when he says, I have fought the good fight. You recognize that. That word is the same as, as uh, race. All right? I have fought the good fight. We are called to be actively involved in a race that is more like a fight than a casual Saturday afternoon jog. In a fight, there's always two things at play. What are you fighting for? And what are you fighting against? We are fighting for God's glory. But what are we fighting against? Ephesians 6.12 says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against darkness and its forces and powers. We are also fighting against our own sinful nature. So we see that there's struggles without and there's struggles within. Back in chapter 11, verses 35 through 40, the author shows us what some of the other saints had to struggle against in order to run their race. They were our trailblazers. They were our, the pioneers for our faith. The Christian church in America has had it pretty easy up to this part. However, we may be called to travel the same path they traveled. The second aspect of the race is that it is a race that is set before us. A couple of things I want to uh, illustrate about this is it is not a race that we choose. It is set before us. This is a passive form. So we, don't, we are not active in the choosing, but it is chosen for us by God. He has ordained the race that we are to be engaged in. We're not to be fighting our own battles. From an athletic perspective, engaged in athletic activity that's not focused on your task is wasting energy. It's distracting from the true calling. It's distracting from the thing that we are engaged to be laser-focused on. Elite runners, they watch how they exert themselves. When you look at elite runners and how they train, they don't have any wasted energy. Their time is completely bent on achieving the goal. Even in training, when they're in training, they don't do things that are outside of their training plan. They stick to the plan because they have faith in the plan. And so, and so we are to be. So now I'd like to start with the motivation for running the race. If you're keeping score, this would be sub-point one under main point one. Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, this is our motivation. Chapter 11, referring back to the long list of saints, he ties in the start of chapter 12, referring back to that, the great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. In our self-centered world, we may think that these witnesses are witnesses to our performance. This image, the, the way it's phrased, may make us think that there's a stadium full of faithful believers who have come before us who are cheering us on. But that's not what they're witnesses of. They are witnesses to the faith that God gave them and to his glory and the promise of his son, not witnesses to our performance. They are, however, examples for us. We are to look to them and draw encouragement from their faithful walk. They and others like them have passed the baton to us to continue with the race imagery, entrusting the gospel to us. They have run their leg of the race with endurance and faith. 
their faithfulness should be an encouragement and a motivation for us to move forward in excellence and faith. Second, we have the preparation for running the race. The author calls us to lay aside two things, encumbrances and sin. So the word encumbrance is a weight. It's, something that is, it's like something on your back that's not necessary for the activity that you're engaged in. If you're interested in, like, cheap entertainment, come up to, come up to the seminary about 8.05 on a Tuesday morning, and you'll see well-dressed men with big packs on their back running all out to be on time for class, but they're already late. <laughs> now, it, it, is, it is quite humorous to do, uh, to, to, to watch. Now, these packs on their back... They're full of books, they're full of laptops, they're full of really good things. In fact, books are great for learning, they're great for sermon preparation, for educating yourselves. The laptops are great for checking email and doing uh, papers, writing research papers. But for that task, the task that the, that the students are engaged in, they are, it's not effective. In fact, it detracts from the effort that they're putting forth in the running. We're told that these encumbrances were in the lives of the readers of the, Hebrew, of the letter of Hebrews. It says, all, put aside all encumbrances. We don't know what these encumbrances were. He doesn't list them specifically. Uh, but we're told that they are, we are to put them aside. So we are, as Christians, to evaluate all things in our life. Everything that we have that takes up our time, that takes up our energy to determine, is it getting me closer to the prize? Is it helping me run the race? Or is it a hindrance? So we have many items. Uh, they're not bad things. And in fact, if you're confronted with them, you may want to justify yourself and say, oh, but this is, this is not bad. It's not spoken against in the Bible. What's wrong with that? Right? When our lives are filled with distractions, though, we become distracted. When you're surrounded by distractions, guess what? You become distracted, and you're not effective for the kingdom of God. So what are some things in your life that are keeping you from running well? Think on that. In addition to laying aside encumbrances, we're told to lay aside the sin which entangles us. The author may have had some specific sins in mind, given his reference back in chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In addition, in, uh, right after our passage in chapter 12, verse 4, he says to his readers that you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. He's admonishing them for falling short of the expectation. This is a high bar. To, to resist to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. So unlike 1 Corinthians, where Paul names several sins that they were to stay away from, he doesn't do that. But we do know in general principles, nothing can render a Christian useless faster than that of persistent sin in your life, a lack of personal holiness. So this topic 
would, could warrant a, a, an entire series. But in the time that I have, I just want to talk about uh, the ineffectiveness of a Christian who is entangled in sin. We know this word entangle, or uh, th- this word is meaning entangle or ensnare or obstruct. It is something that gets in your way. It's something that grabs hold of you and would not let you proceed, will not let you move forward. So it's like someone getting in a trap. You're walking down a path, you're running down a path, and a snare gets you. Snares are meant to hold you fast. Now your entire focus is on getting out of that trap. You're not running the race. You're not moving forward like you're called to do. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, chapter 3, verse 9, to put off the old self with its practices. We're no longer to be engaged in persistent sin. In Romans 13, uh, verse 12, Paul says, The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. We see this theme consistently in the scriptures, the putting off and putting on. James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 21, to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. So again, I ask, what sin is ensnaring you today that is preventing you from running the race well? So after the preparation for running, then we see the means in which we are to run. That is, with endurance. Endurance means to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty, patience, fortitude. It also means patience, fortitude, steadfastness, and perseverance. Endurance and its verbal form shows up three times in these three verses. So we see that it's drawing us back to chapter 10, where the writer encourages the readers to endure in the light of their previous conflicts, as well as their upcoming need for endurance. They, They had endured, and they're called to endure. The Bible has much to say about endurance in the Christian life. James twice says that the person is blessed when they endure under trial. 1 Peter 2.20 says that enduring suffering for doing what is right finds favor with God. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24.13 that the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's often been said that the Christian life is not a sprint, but a marathon. You've heard that? Sometimes I think that's meant to be an encouragement to someone who's exerting themselves full out as if they were sprinting. And to dial it back a little bit, maybe, maybe think long term. Um, I also think that this phrase might be used by somebody who's never ran a marathon before. <laughs> because you feel like you're at your max all the time because you know that you have this long road ahead of you. But I would agree with the statement in that the Christian life is, in most cases, long and requires a sustained effort over a long period of time. We are to run with endurance, and we can look to the next point to see how we are to gain this endurance. So after the preparation for running we see that the uh, manner in which we are to run. How are we to have this endurance? Fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The last hymn we sang today in the main service was wonderful in that it highlighted 
fixing our eyes upon Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. So the word fixing means to direct one's attention without distraction, to concentrate. To continue with the sports analogies, every sport that has a ball in it, what's the number one thing that the coach tells you to do? Keep your eye on the ball, ball, right? Keep your eye on the ball. Because to do anything else, to take your eye off the ball, increases the chance substantially of you missing your mark. In fact, in driving, in race car driving, they, they tell you wherever your eyes go, and you may have even experienced this on the five, wherever your eyes go, that's where your car's going to go. So if you're looking ahead at the next curve, that's where you're going to go. But if you're looking into the wall, guess where your car's going? Right into the wall. In the same way in our Christian life, whatever we fix our gaze upon, whatever we meditate on and concentrate on, that is the direction we will go. So what are some things that, we, that can steal and capture our gazes? We can focus on others and become preoccupied with what they are doing, whether that's righteous or sinful. We can focus on ourselves, engage in the proverbial navel-gazing, and become consumed with our own needs, our own desires, and our own failings. We can focus on the world and the pursuit of wealth, of esteem in others' eyes, the approval of men, or pleasures. But fixing our eyes on these things will draw us further in those directions and away from where we are called to fix our eyes on, and that is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he is the author and perfecter of our faith. The writer of Hebrews is encouraging the readers and us to run with endurance the race of faith that is set before us. So how can we do this? By fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of that faith. Both author and perfecter were used in chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 10, in the context of Jesus' victory over sin and death and as the leader who brings many sons to glory. So we see the same theme here, where Jesus is the leader of our faith. He lived the life that we could not live, and by doing so, he blazed the trail for all believers to follow. He is our superior example for how to live a life completely dependent on the Father through faith. To be submitted to God in faith means to trust Him with whatever His plans are for you. A Christian will realize intellectually that God knows best, but also in his or her heart will trust that whatever comes your way is for your benefit and for His glory. Jesus did this perfectly by submitting submitting His will to that of the Father, And by doing so, he died on the cross. We see the struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane where he asked if it's possible that this cup pass from him. We would be remiss to think that that was not a true challenge for him. But he passed perfectly. Not only is Jesus the leader of faith, but he's also the perfecter of faith. His victory over sin and death showed that his faith was a perfect faith. And Jesus is the, imperfect, is the perfect embodiment of faith. 
Not only was his act a perfect act of faith, but through his act of obedience, he will perfect our faith. He's not just a perfect manifestation of a faithful life lived. He's not just a great or the perfect example, but he is the very Son of God who through his perfectly faithful act brought about God's perfect act of redemption, making salvation possible by grace for all those who believe. In that act, he endured the cross. He endured the shame that this brought for him for the sake of the joy that was set before him. Why did he do it? Because of the joy that he knew he would experience. Christ had no greater joy than to glorify his Father, and we see that repeated time and again throughout the Gospels. This is the model that we are to live by. We are to look past the shame that we experience for the sake of bringing glory to God on earth, and we do this by running the race with endurance. As a mark of completion, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This shows that Christ, through his obedience, achieved perfect glory for the Father and is now sharing in that glory. Paul in Philippians 2, 7 said, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Paul knew that his sufferings for the sake of Christ would bring glory to God, and he rejoiced in that. The first commandment that we have is to run the race with endurance by fixing our eyes on Christ. That brings us to the second command that should encourage you to endure the hardships of the Christian life, and that is to consider him. For consider him, verse 3, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary, fainting in heart. The word consider here is used only here in the Bible and means to reason with careful deliberation. Our Christian faith is not one of blind faith. It's one that requires us to deliberate to to be deliberate about it, to consider it, to think about it. The author here reiterates Jesus' passion as a command. We are to carefully think about Jesus Christ, what he gave up, and what he endured on our behalf. The gospel tells us that Jesus was spat on, he was slapped, scourged, crowned with thorns, stripped, pierced, ridiculed, and despised, and finally hung on a tree as a public display, all at the hands of the very men whom he created. The ultimate insult, the ultimate humiliation. We are to consider the magnitude of that humiliation. This is what it means to consider. That the Lord of all the universe would subject himself to hostility from sinners. Why? Why are we commanded to consider this? For the purpose of drawing encouragement from it. 
We are to consider him so that we would be encouraged, so that we would not grow weary and lose heart. The word weary here means to be fatigued to the point of stopping or even sick in spirit. Today, Jubilant sang a song in the first service that talked about he feels like a motherless child. You could just hear the, the weariness in his voice. It's a great song. Just as a marathon runner will hit the wall, you hear about the wall in marathon running. usually comes about uh, miles 18 to 20. You hit the wall and all you want to do is stop. You just want to stop. Your body tells you to stop. It's the point at which your body gives out. You've depleted all your energy. Your motivation goes down. And, and all you can think about, every nerve in your body is saying stop. This is, this is what happens to us in our Christian walk from time to time, or Christian race. And we are prone to having moments of fatigue and weariness. In those times, a marathon runner can think about people who have done that before. Oh, if so-and-so did this, well, I can do it, right? Play mind tricks on yourself just to keep your body going, just to get over the hump. And that's a pale analogy for what we're called to do, but that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing for us in chapter 11 by giving us all of the witnesses and ultimately pointing to Christ, who is the supreme witness, who is the supreme model of faith. How much more are we to consider him after enduring the shame of the cross that he promised, ultimately, he promised the Holy Spirit who would dwell inside of each one of us who believes and be our helper to minister to us in those times of weariness. In fact, in our times of persecution and at all times, we must think seriously upon Jesus. He will refresh us he will give us strength and purpose. He will make our path straight. Doing so, keeping our eyes on Christ, does a few things for us in addition to, to allowing us to endure. It keeps us humble, as Christ was humble. It keeps us away from pride. It keeps us grounded in the truth. We read about Jesus being the Word. He is truth. He is the embodiment of truth keeps us focusing on him, keeps us grounded in the truth. It also keeps us away from, from foolishness, as Pastor John talked about today in the main service. How do you stay away from foolishness? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Be in his word. So finally, in closing, I want to say God, I want you to take away two things. God has told us to run. And God has told us to consider. These are not options. These are commands. They're commands in the Bible. So you're either running the Christian race or you're not. There's nobody sitting on the sidelines here. So have you submitted yourself to Christ? In a room this big, I would be, it would be unusual to not have somebody who has not made that decision to submit their life to Christ. Have you turned over everything in your life to him? Have you shed every weight that is weighing you down, thinking, oh, tomorrow or the next day? We're not guaranteed tomorrow. 
Today is the day that we have. Are you leading a life of obedience and increasing in holiness? If not, do so today. He will give you rest. Jesus has a burden that he gives to us. In fact, he says in Matthew 11, uh, verse 38 through 40, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Are you weighed down with burdens, your own burdens, and sin which are hindering you from running well? Turn those over to Christ. He is the superior mediator who has paid the price for all of our sins. We are to have a burden, but it's to be Christ's, not our own. Are you looking at something other than Christ today? Turn your gaze upon him and keep it there, fixated on him always. There's nothing more worthwhile for us to fix our eyes on. As I mentioned before, God knows what's good for us, and he has commanded us to do these things for our benefit and for his glory. This life has eternal consequences, and the decisions and actions that we make today will have eternal consequences. Our race is long. Our calling is high. We are becoming separated from the culture in America that has so long we've been, that for so long we've been integrated with. I come from the, the Bible Belt, and it's you're expected to be a Christian, a churchgoer. And if you ask the, a normal person, well, I was born a Christian, or my parents are Christians, or I go to a church, that's how they affiliate with Christ. Not, I have submitted my life to Christ, and I'm now running the Christian race. But here in America, I think that time is passing. I think we are going to be called to face increased persecution. So this is a letter for us to endure. So when you face persecution, whether it's family friction with an unbelieving family member that causes you to have division, or whether it's trouble at work or school uh, because of your Christian beliefs, because the world tells you to go along with the lie that they're perpetrating, think about this. I think we're going to have an elevated and more painful uh, set of persecutions coming our way. And I would encourage you to keep running and run with your eyes fixated on Christ. And do not look away. He will strengthen you and he will sustain you until your work on earth is complete. Let us pray. Father God, your, your word is truth. I thank you, Lord, today that you have given us this word in Hebrews. I thank you for the faithful that are documented here that we can look to as uh, examples for our faith that have led lives that were faithful even though they did not see what was promised. I thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who has come into the world so that we might have eternal life and forgiveness of sins paying the price for us. Lord, let this word be an encouragement to your people today. Let them go out with strength and endurance to fight the good fight of faith, Lord. And I pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.